0: Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 292 Perfect Insight is Perfect Love. In this episode, Kelly Sosan Bearer speaks with two teachers, Sophia Diaz and Trudy Goodman, about feminine practice, its connections to, and how it differs from the masculine perspective of practice. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to Geeks of the Roundtable. I am your host, Kelly Sosan Bear. And today we are joined by two deep, amazing women practitioners, Trudy Goodman and Sophia Diaz. Trudy Goodman is the executive director and founding teacher of Inside LA, a nonprofit organization for Vipassana meditation training and secular mindfulness education. Trudy was a psychotherapist in private practice for 25 years and studied Buddhist meditation for 36 years with Asian and Western teachers. And she's the fourth teacher of the MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which she taught with its creator, Dr. Jon Kabat-Zinn. She's also the guiding teacher and co-founder of the original Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the first center in the world dedicated to integrating these two disciplines. So welcome, Trudy. And Sophia Diaz. Sophia is a Hatha Yoga master and a lineage holder in the Balasaraswati lineage of the South Indian Temple Arts and a recipient of numerous meditation empowerments in both Tibetan and the Shakta Tantric traditions. And she turns the body wisdom practices that she's empowered in into accessible teachings and practices for the modern Western mind. Being an inspired woman practitioner, the rigors of her practice have resulted in great clarity and expertise in the domain of feminine spiritual practice, which she has been generously teaching for over 30 years. So welcome, Sophia. And today's topic is feminine practice and gender roles in buddhism so i thought a great way to kick this off is this the basics what is feminine practice because we're making a distinction here you know there's practice and then we make the distinction of feminine practice how do you guys define feminine practice Uh, what is it for you how do you personally engage this both in your own practice and with your students um just kind of want to throw that out there for someone
2: to pick up I'd love to pick that one up because it is, um, you know, I think it's a semantics, but it's also the result of a lot of confusion and a non-examination of something really huge. And that is the difference, the exact difference between uh, feminine and masculine and the gender of male and female. And so feminine Uh, spiritual practice because I have just had quite a ride from being trained and actually, you know, a a lot of reflection in the South Indian temple arts because it is a lot of conductivity in your body. It's a very uh, intense meditative but physical discipline. And so my teachers through parables and all kinds of things reflected me what a tomboy that I was. And this lit up this entire dimension that I became really sensitive to when I would come back to the United States and kind of see what people had going on in their bodies. And so it has been like, I've had, you know, probably like magnifying glasses on both eyes looking at this dimension. And so I'm just going to throw out what my experience has resulted in the definition. I would call the feminine aspect of any spiritual practice, man or woman, the devotional aspect, the feeling dimension versus the insight and contemplative dimension. Now, there is a, you know, there's a physicality to contemplation and everything, but I'm saying if we separate them and develop them as very distinct things, there is the entire, you know, embodiment of like the Japanese flower arranging principle that is also a demonstration of great devotion to life force itself and then there is the insight that that arises from so another part of feminine practice is that it actually requires a lot of body conductivity of awareness you know it's an action with the body rather than a disappearance into a particular insight practice Mm -hmm. so that's what i'm going to throw out (laughs)
1: <laughs> so so feminine does not mean woman or female, but feminine in terms of an energetic.
2: Yes. In terms of two dynamisms that are present, and I would say it's possible to emphasize both, but we have inherited a culture and a cultural interpretation of all of the traditions that tends to be more masculine oriented, which, mm-hmm. you know, the symbolic word of the philosophy, the contemplation, the insight. And so I'm saying a very biased perspective in order to bring out the conversation. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. And I, I would say, you know, when I look at the beginnings, when I started to practice in the um, I guess the early 70s, actually, and what it was like starting out in Buddhist practice, in Zen and Vipassana, were the two areas of Buddhism where I really trained and studied. There were practically no female teachers. I mean, we could talk about feminine and masculine energies, but as Sophia was saying, in our culture, they do tend to constellate in male and female bodies, and that we're conditioned to hold one or the other. And when I started out, there really there really were so few women teachers there were so few female voices in the recorded teachings and i began to wonder where where were the women all these centuries millennia actually mm-hmm. we know they were there we know they were practicing we know they were strong and accomplished and you know one of the great things about that drew me to buddhism in the first place to buddhist practice was that the buddha believed so clearly that women had the exact same sense bases their bodies were made of the same elements have the same aggregates um, of experience and therefore the same absolute qualifications to find the highest spiritual truths and and so that that was just a deep question for me where where are the women and what happened to them and it intersected with being part of the women's movement in the very early, again, 1971, early days of the consciousness raising movement and understanding that what we had inherited was a literature psychology to a large extent, so many fields that was designed by and for men and not to throw out the hierarchies and lineages and say, you know, men, with titles or men in robes are the problem, they're not. It was a much wider problem of, we would call it patriarchy, which stands for the whole way that women's lives and voices couldn't be honored. And that's changed so much now. But when we started, that's the way it was. And -hmm. our teachers taught us equally and we trained equally hard, all of us together. There was no distinction between you know, women and men in our training. But then the examples that would be used, the metaphors that would be used, the books and, and teachings that we read, they were very, very male at that time. Mm-hmm.
1: How did that, as a, as a practitioner, did that affect you at all? Would, did you feel like you were
3: missing some kind of uh, like female role model practitioners? Yes, it. it was a longing. I felt a longing. I used to ask my first teacher about it. And You know, he didn't really understand, but then he began, he actually was, um, he had a kind of prophetic voice and and would say, you know, um, in the next century, it's going to be women who carry this practice. But I didn't really see how we were going to get at that time. From where we were to there. And now, you know, here we are to a large extent. But yes, I felt a longing for uh, female voices and teachers. And so what we did is we started groups and we held conferences on women in Buddhism. And I actually found, um, I found a female teacher and I was overjoyed. Maureen Stewart Roshi was a very powerful Zen teacher, and she had had three kids. She Mm. was a concert pianist. She wore lipstick. (laughs) (laughs) And I fell in love with her. And yes, there was a tremendous longing for that. Um, And it it wasn't so much a need for permission. Um, I was always feisty and strong. I think it was just the longing for company, for Mm. somebody who's down the road a little and who, in their Dharma talks, would talk about her children being born from her body like ripe fruit. And, you know, would just tell the stories of women's embodiment. Because that was the other thing. There was such an emphasis on transcendence mm-hmm. and transcending the body. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. That every, and and so much to do with us as females. You know, I used to say, where's the milk? Where's the blood? Where's the dirt? This is, you know... Uh, who's going to clean that Guga that collects in the drain of the sink, you know, before we all had, <laughs> <Yeah, yeah. proposals? laughs> I mean, it's the women who do that. And yeah. so there was just a longing for that female embodiment. And I guess Sophia, you found it in the physicality of your, Yoga practice. Um, I don't know. I'm interested in that. Well, that was
2: was after um, I had the same experience because I was, you know, I hope this is okay language, but it just really is the feeling that I had that I was so attracted in college to um, any, you know, transcendent tradition that I always found myself in the company of men instructors of all of these things from a Qi class to the meditation classes and I had a profound longing for the company of women, but I was so enraptured with being given anything that I really feel that it was only, you know, probably 10 or 12 years ago that I noticed that I had practiced really hard to erase myself and a big part of that self erasure, including you know, the perfection of Hatha yoga and all these ways that I didn't realize I was doing was because I was deeply ensconced in a way I wasn't aware of, of this very masculine perspective, which is always about transcendent versus qualities. Like you can actually fill in qualities with your enlightened nature as well as transcend them. And I had erred in the direction of transcending a lot. And it was just this one seminar, a co-teacher brought something up and I had this huge experience of going, oh my gosh, what a waste of time. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but my yearning for the company yeah. of women, now I was very squeamish about being held in the totally feminine disposition, which was the entrance to the study of the South Indian temple arts. Now I knew enough of the devotional genius in it. it had nothing to do with submission, it had to do with a very profound rigor, and my teachers held me in that you know just in terms of of dress and and breath, and I had to relearn how to walk and all kinds of things and I shed so many bodily resistances to being who I am and had so much more energy that that's what lit me up about this whole embodiment thing and then I'd come back and notice how it wasn't happening for so many women that I totally respected relative to their practice and <laughs> their genius in the world but I did recognize this kind of suffering of a of a shored upness in terms of bodily expression yeah. so that launched you know basically everything that I do but I, I did not notice like you did, so I have to commend you just hugely that you actually sought out women that were beyond your your level of advancement. And I was just so happy to get any information that it took me decades to notice that I had deeply absorbed this very particular priority that I do think comes along With the nervous system of the gender of being a man, I don't think it's for everybody, but I do think it's more common of a disposition in literally the neurological buildup of a man versus a woman. I just totally took it on because they were the teachers.
3: I think I was just more rebellious than you. I don't know how commendable that is. But I just think that you know, for me, I, I I practiced because I loved to practice, and the whole emphasis on achievement or. Um, moving up in the lineage, becoming this kind of teacher. There were steps. First you take five precepts, then you take ten precepts. Then you. And, and I think I just rebelled against that because I loved to practice. And I had been brought up to be achievement-oriented and to do well in school. And I had done well in school and gone to good schools. So there was a part of me that just did not want that to be my spiritual practice, that mm. same mind. And then the other difference is, Uh, Well, I do thank the women's movement, too, because I was a feminist before I was a Buddhist. (laughs) uh, No, but that was fortunate for me. And I think the other part that just could not be denied is I was a mom. Mm -hmm.
2: I was a mom.
3: So there was only so far it could go for me. Right, right. Kind of training you were free to do. You see, I I couldn't move into the Zen Center and become a sort of boy girl, you know, in Mm -hmm. there, in that Mm -hmm. system with my, you know, um, sort of almost cropped hair and wire-rimmed glasses. I did get the wire-rimmed glasses. Because <laughs> they were stylish. They were stylish, yes. And I was um, fashion conscious. We all wore flannel shirts and work boots. And and, <laughs> and now today, I think, my God, I squandered my most beautiful years in, in baggy work pants. And anyway, so yeah. but, <laughs> but I think that the the being a mom part, it was it was experienced sometimes as a limitation, but I knew deep in my bones that had been a doorway for me into what you call devotion, or I would call just love mm-hmm. of um, this other dimension of being. And, and I knew it deeply because my first sort of big spiritual opening happened while I was giving birth. I think I was 21 years old. Oh I had God. never... I, I had never read anything about Buddhism or done yoga or anything at that point, actually. And mm. and then I began looking for those things because of the experience that I had and mm. and realizing, oh, this, this world, uh, this is not what I thought it was. Right. There's, a, <laughs> there's a lot more to it here. <laughs> and I think, too, because of that, the early spiritual experiences that I had came to me Um, During times of enormous suffering, when I just happened to be up against it and alone, um, Mm. one was giving birth. Nobody gives birth alone anymore. It was just a weird thing that happened. um, (laughs) I'll say. (laughs) (laughs) Mid-century, anyway. um, And then my daughter, when she was two and a half, um, she got a catastrophic illness. She was in the children's hospital in geneva switzerland for two and a half months and for the first couple weeks her life was really in the balance she was in a coma for a long time and then when she came out she's it was really in the balance and so there was another experience when they had a code and all these doctors came running and they were working on this tiny little body with all these tubes and that was you know my body because that was my first experience of yes. you know the connection and the merging and that not being one person and and that just being up against that intensity of that kind of suffering um, mm. again there was an opening and I just I saw God I knew and having those experiences taught me that they didn't belong to Buddhism or Christianity or Judaism or any of the traditions mm-hmm. and, and I think that was lucky. I think that was fortunate. So I just, I just chose a tradition that um, fit the best out of the ones that existed that I knew about.
2: Absolutely. And the way you just described it, it I, feel, and I feel traditions to be like SOS pads, you know, exactly. away exactly. <laughs> the, the obstruction to our nature, yeah. you know, the <laughs> fundamental nature. But when you get a hit like that and it's undeniable then you are attracted to particular things that are karmic, you know, that what you're attracted to, to answer it. And I do feel like we have motives that can be divided along the two lines of feminine motives and masculine motives. I feel like we de-emphasize the fact that perfect insight is perfect love, is, you know, a suspended state of, of boundless rapture, as well as emptiness clarity. And we just have a yeah. tendency to emphasize one or the other, which is why I think it's so important because I go around in teaching settings and basically, you know, I I'm a little bit nuts about doing this is giving women permission yeah. for their experience because it is not this um always this emptiness thing. And as soon as I feel a woman criticizing the expansiveness as well as the stillness, it's its something that we just naturally do. Like, oh, it, it only fits in this, you know, category or description. And you just described the whole spectrum in your experience, you know, including the rigor of recognition that suffering brings one to. You know, your eyes have to be open completely. And there is massive insight, but the view that comes is like you said, it's, it's, you're not separate from God. It's, it's love. It's unbounded perfection, even though there's so much suffering.
3: Yes. And I think I really bow to Sharon Salzberg for bringing love front and center into our Buddhist tradition. And you know, in Zen too, it's it's implicit. It's always implicit. It's so Mm -hmm. rarely explicit. Maybe today, I haven't really trained in Zen for a long time. So Kelly, you can (laughs) say something about that. (laughs) But, but, and for psychotherapy too, you know, I had this whole other, um, my livelihood um, and discipline of Western psychology and psychotherapy. And, and I felt like, Yes, to talk about the kind of attention, just the kind of attention we're offering to each other as a form of love. Nobody was doing that because that word was unprofessional, uh, undisciplined, Mm -hmm. uh, not empty. (laughs) Yeah, no, and it's
2: um, you know, it's a huge distinction. One of my greatest teachers made that blew my mind away. Is he? He said feeling is a capacity distinct from emotion. And when you feel without bounds, it's like you're not separate. You are love. Everything is love, you know? Mm. But the emotion that we have relegated that word to as a culture has an embarrassment factor to it. You know, it's kind of like, that's what needs to be cleaned up, that romantic superficiality. And, you know, as soon as I heard that the Chinese have five words for love, it kind of widened my view of the fact that I had to start adding things to that word to make sure that it wasn't confused for the emotion that everybody feels is the limitation. You know, instead, it's like another word for our fundamental nature in a, in a dynamism, you know, an in life dynamism is what it, what my experience of it is. Although I've got to say, you know, those suspended moments of total stillness where it's like right after your heart has just broken open from something, either something terrible or wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then it's like everything is still moving, but nothing is happening. Mm-hmm. And I would call that
3: searing love
2: you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> once again. <Yeah.
3: laughs> that is so clear, Sophia. I love that distinction. It is so clear because love it's, yes, it's mushy and, and attached, attached, you know, that sticking mm-hmm. attachment that we are taught to fear so deeply. And, um, and, and, what you yeah it's really clear what you just said i used to talk about the difference between attachment and attunement mm-hmm. and that attunement attunement is really what you have just so articulately expressed
2: exactly because yeah you know the fundamental thing in even you know einstein opened it up in the technicality of our world is that we are truly unbounded light And the feeling of light is love, you know, love, but it's not the emotion of love. It's that fundamental indestructible nature. And that the emphasis of practicing based on that, I feel like is a is a feminine choice rather than the seeking of freedom from qualities, which is, you know, I've got to say I've attracted my opposites in every profound relationship that I have ever had. I almost have to laugh at the fact that we get to the same place, but my motive is so different. You know? wow. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's that, uh, wow. the freedom thing, the kind of erasure of qualities where to me, it's like the outshining of qualities is what the delicious attraction factor. Now, of course I've sat, you know, enough, to be confused about which one is which but <laughs> but it's a that's the distinction that I would make about a masculine preference is initially freedom from qualities which is a kind of love mm-hmm. and a feminine preference is to unconfuse all qualities with that unbounded love so it's through and participatory in things like being a kindergarten teacher or being a mother you know you cannot Well, there are people who do it who basically are full of stillness and are in the midst of that, but your attention has to be full of all the qualities. And that's what I would call successful feminine practice is total immersion, non-separateness from what could be considered chaos, but is fundamentally mind-spinning love, (laughs) colorful confetti of reality. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Sounds like you're talking about children. <laughs> yeah,
2: cuz they're know, the ones that yeah you, you, that you can't you know, you think you're all realized and then you
3: spend some time with kids. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I think true. that's probably why I spent most of my professional life working with and around children. And I mm-hmm. think for that reason those qualities, the confetti, the chaos, the freedom to fully embody who they are, and I don't want to totally idealize children because they kick and bite each other freely too. But um, which is something we've mostly learned not to do. Um, <laughs> but or we do it in different ways. <laughs> in the <laughs> at, least, at,
1: least, I was gonna say, at least we don't do it in the gross
3: realm. Other realms. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Exactly. But that freedom to to fully to be in the body, I mean, what you're talking about, the freedom to embody these qualities and to understand they too are doorways into vast emptiness or stillness or wisdom and compassion. Um, just the distinction between wisdom and compassion, for example, in our tradition, compassion mm-hmm. gets feminized and then, it's, then, it, then it becomes, would you believe it, less important in less some them, way. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah yeah whereas you know any experience of emptiness or wisdom or still whatever word we put on it 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 contains compassion compassion is the the air of it or the mm-hmm. the atmosphere of it and so just the focus on i think what would be the opposite of transcendence imminence That Mm, embodiment, the imminence of things, is what I've been drawn to, and I love that you talked about people who have the quiet, who have the stillness, who have the wisdom, but they aren't wearing any particular hat or credential. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we we have sonar for that. We feel that totally, Mm -hmm. and that to, to respect and honor that, I think is also, it's so beautiful and very feminine.
2: Yes. And also the capacity to notice that in somebody that isn't wearing a hat is actually a feeling capacity, you know, to be able to feel the person and then revere it. And I had, you know, when we're seeking some kind of idealized tradition, which I always was, you know, I realized I was given so many moments of complete perfection. And one was at the DeYoung Museum in San Francisco. I was in college and I had to do a research paper and I went into their Japanese garden and there was this elderly man that is the reason why I sidled over to the bench you know and he was an Asian man and he did this exercise that I still teach but it was everything about the comportment of his being and Mexican culture is full of a really great relationship to elderly people so I didn't I didn't have any qualms striking up a conversation respectfully about you know how old are you? You're so magnificent. And he did not know. And he said that he was a very different person up until the age of 60. Now he didn't say what happened to him, Mm -hmm. but he said that he had been doing the exercise I just saw him do every day since he was 60. And you could tell that his contemplation, his love, you know, the, the look in his eyes, I've only seen from my own grandmother and the generosity with passing on, the wisdom of the simple swinging thing that he said revolutionized his awareness. He didn't say it like that. He said that it allowed me to change my life in a way it needed to be changed. And that he, he didn't speak much. And then he just sat there and here I am seeking traditions and, you know, to have a star put on my head of appropriate practice. And I was given like everything on a, on a park bench in San Francisco when I was avoiding writing a paper, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I'm glad that I felt him. But once again, I relegated that experience into a different pocket than practice, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Or, tra- or transmission until right. now.
0: is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network.